0: I'd I'd like to focus on one particular aspect that the the book, Duties of the Heart, which is more or less what we're utilizing now in the beginning of the class, focuses on one particular issue in terms of belief of God in relationship to how we see God in the world. We, We spoke out in the earlier classes that we had that there is much to indicate the probability of God's existence in the world by studying nature. When we look at all of the different systems of nature, the orders, the balances, the intricacies of nature, and so on and so forth, just as a question of probabilities the Chalves Halvavis, this the author of this book, develops a sense that it's highly improbable that the world was able to come into being even if you want to put billions of years into the into the into the formula. It's highly improbable that this world came about without a creator and without a purposeful creator. And basically the theme that the author uses is he goes through different parts of nature, shows us a lot of the beauty and the balances and the orders of nature, and really leaves it up to us in our own minds to figure out does it make a whole lot of sense that all of these things just came about quite accidentally but so beneficial to man. Now, I'm not going to get into the subject which we spoke about the last time I was here, I apologize for not being able to be here last week. But I'm not going to get into all of the factors that are barriers to our being able to accept God's involvement in the world. We spoke about that a lot the last time that we met together, and we spoke about it even more so in the introduction to this course. So all of that stuff that we carry around, that baggage of resentment that we carry around for whatever didn't go right in our lives, we should try to keep that at abeyance, we should try to keep that on the back burner for the time being and try to appreciate the, the observations that the author is making about the beauty of nature and how it is so beneficial to man and how it helps man in so many different ways. So this is basically what the the general theme the general theme of this author is all about let's look at the things let's think to ourselves without resentments and without emotional barriers how probable these things are to have come about without somebody purposefully putting them there and let's draw the intellectually objective conclusions about the probability of God now this is one particular general path that the author takes. However, within that path, the author examines a particularly interesting subject, which most probably, most people that would teach this course to you would totally skip over this point. And I personally think that it's a very, very important point, and therefore from the third and fourth chapter I selected out pieces that you'll see that they're bracket marks around in the sheets that are in front of you that really point to another whole area of this concept of trying to find God through nature. One level of trying to find God okay, through nature is a very ca- calculated proofs of probability. How much sense does it make that this order, and this balance, and this beautiful thing worked out the way it did, just by mutation, survival of the fittest, etc., etc.? How probable is it? A very cold, calculated, logical kind of thing. However, the Chovos Halvavos also wants to introduce us to another perception. Not only is nature a proof of God's existence, but that nature possesses God's existence, that it contains within itself the existence of God. In other words, it could be that God... You could hypothetically think to yourself that God created the world. He's not in the world in any way. He's not absorbed in the world. He's not involved in the world in any way. But he created the world in a way that people should know, aha, there must be somewhere out there, somebody that made this, but is that someone that made it in any way in the world that he made? Not necessarily. There are many people that put up buildings, and architects, and they move on. They're not in their buildings. They're not etched into stone. They don't have offices in the buildings that they built. They built the building that they were hired to build. They They get paid for it, and they move on. What the Chavez Havavis wants to teach us over here is that it's not enough that we just use nature to draw the conclusions about the probability of somebody having created it. But that if a person looks carefully at nature, not only does he find a logical proof that somebody must have created it, but that creator has never left that which he created that he is within that which he created this is the subject that the Chovus Halvavus wants to demonstrate for us and it has a tremendous amount of importance and I'll I'll try to demonstrate the importance that it has let me just say something okay in a, in a very general way okay in a very general way it's one kind of a world and what it demands of us in terms of our own response to it if God was some kind of a master architect finished his job and left so we say a one time thank you to God you're a wonderful architect if you're looking for work I'll always hire you and goodbye Okay, and that's the end of it it's quite a different story if if we perceive of God not only as the, the architect of nature but that he resides that he's not only the landlord but the tenant of the nature that he created, then God has given us something even more than all of the nature that we live in. He's given, him, he's given us himself. And giving of himself to us opens up a completely different ballgame in terms of how a person is supposed to feel in his relationship to God if it's just that it was a masterful architect and thank you very much you were very considerate in the way that you wrote up your blueprints it's one thing it's not, it's not nothing either it's not nothing either we, we, didn't, we didn't pay God to, to be the architect of, of, of this wonderful nature and we didn't do anything necessarily when we moved into this world to even deserve it All right? so there's, there, there is a place for gratitude but it's a totally different story if it's not a post-facto thing, it's not something of the past, but that it's ever-present, not only in the architect of nature, but in the architect himself saying to us that not only do I want to give you nature, but I want to give you a part of my very self, together with the nature that I created. And this is the subject that I'd like to draw out of the third and fourth chapter very often we go through these chapters and we're just looking for the proofs. Okay? We're looking for the proofs and there's legitimacy in that. But we shouldn't fail to see this point. And it was for this reason that I've dedicated this class to zero in specifically on this point more than the other points. Okay? Because then our perception of the world, our perception of ourselves, and our perception of God becomes a totally different one because then we're dealing with the God that's real, involved, with us, in us, in the world, and it's a whole different thing, okay? So now, um, okay, I'm I'm not terribly good at making these brackets, but if you look on page 138, okay, you will notice some markings on the fourth line there, okay? And that marking ends about 10 lines later. Okay, on page 138. No, you'll have to share. I don't know from week to week how many people are in the class. Now, basically, I'll read in Hebrew translated into English for all of you. That might be put off by the Latin. I mean by the Hebrew uh, over here. The Hadrach Ruchni Yis HaOlam Hazer and become equipped to see the beauty of the spiritual nature that this world possesses. I'll explain that in a moment. hatmima Okay? When you look at the world, don't only look at the physicalness of the world, the elements and the compounds of the world, but see under the surface and recognize that there is a spirit to the world. The world has a certain atmosphere. It possesses a certain energy, all right? And in that beauty of that energy that the world possesses, we see the causes and the effects and the ways that things reach their perfection and their wholesomeness and let's continue I'll explain this in a moment and it's important when we look at the physical world that we come in contact with this beauty the and also the physicalness for the physicalness sense for its physical sense that which speaks and that which is quiet that which stands still and that which moves that which is solidified and that which grows that which is above and that which is below now we can skip a few lines past the author's own parentheses and he finishes this off and he says and it's worthwhile to know it's important to know that the entire world is a combination of the material and the spiritual Nimzegu, his Arvu, they became blended and combined together. And one sustains and upholds the other in the same way that the soul sustains the physical human being. Okay. Now, let's try, okay, let's try to explain. Okay, this is not so easy to explain, but let's try to explain what on earth the is talking about what is the author of this book talking about when he when he speaks of this so let me give you an example let me give you an example of this this we know just for the sake of an example we know that the god reminds us in the in the chumash that we should always take note of the fact that when we went out of Egypt, we went out of Egypt in springtime. Not in the fall, not in the winter, not in the heat of the summer. We went out in springtime. Okay, now most people usually look at that and say that God had a little bit of taste of the poetic. He had a little bit of taste of the artistic. And he figured that the best time to take us out is when things are blossoming and things are nice, etcetera, etc., cetera. The winter is snow, the summer is heat, the fall things are are going into hibernation, spring speaks of youth and perfume and beauty. So isn't that the nice time to take a people out and make them into a nation? Not bad. But that's not really what it's all about. The Maral, who is a great Jewish philosopher, explains a very fascinating thing. And he says like this. He says that really everything in this physical world that God created, really, really its earliest origins come from God. We believe, in Jewish belief, that God is a Creator ex nihilo, which means that nothing pre-existed God's willful decision and desire for it to exist. And therefore everything came into being by the very energy of God's will for it to exist. We will see, when, we learned, when we'll when learn further, that not only did it come into being by virtue of God's will for it to exist, but it continues to exist all the time because of the will for it to exist. If one would observe this, and uh, we'll get into this in greater detail a little bit later, today or next week, I'm not sure, science is wonderful in as much as it gives us an explanation of what is taking place and how it's taking place. How the plant grows, how things evolve, how things are born. But the ultimate why everything happens the way it happens, science can never answer. Science can look at a world post-facto. Science could look at natural phenomena as a fait accompli and say, aha, we know what happened. This happened, and this happened, and this happened, and therefore this follows. But it's a definition of what happened, and maybe even how it happened. But it really doesn't explain why those things happened. It's just that if this happens, then this follows, and this follows, and this follows. But why is it that this follows from this, and this follows from this, and why did this take place? Science doesn't answer that. And when we say that science doesn't answer that, so we're ultimately left with the question, why? And th- the, the answer that we, an- that we give to this in Jewish philosophy is that the ultimate answer to why is because God wanted it to perform in the way that it performs. And because of God's desire for it to perform in the way that God wants it to perform, Therefore, it will then perform in that way, and then science is just studying the outgrowth of God's will for something to perform in the way that it does. Now, there's a lot to talk about, and I'll gladly take questions when we're finished with this, but the morale says, as a first statement, that therefore, when we look at the world, and we look at anything in the world, every single thing in the world is really a response to God's desire for it to exist and to perform in the way that it's performing. It's a response, but it's not a response of something that pre-exists and is responding to God's desire. It's the kind of a response that brings the thing to, into being and into function to begin with. Because of this, the morale says, everything in nature really possesses a spirituality. Because its earliest origin is an origin of the spirit. Because it only came into being to begin with from God, who is the essence of spirituality. So the notion that the physical world has any kind of relationship to the spirit is not peculiar, but is a very natural outgrowth of its creator. In other words, the fact that there could be any sense of spirituality to anything physical is not peculiar. If anything, it is, it is the, the very quality of the thing that came into being. Where is my mama? Where is my mother? Where is the, the origin of my being? The origin of my being is in my God that willed me into being. So the, uh, the God that willed me into being So it means that etched into my existence as a physical thing is some sense and some connection to the Spirit because it's the Spirit that created me. It stands to reason that a person will have a deep connection to the origins from where he comes. That's a very logical thing that a person should have maybe not consciously, maybe subconsciously, maybe not by choice, But there has to be, on some very deep level, a connection between something and the origin from where it comes. That's a very logical thing. We see that phenomenon to be true in nature altogether. Now, because this is true, the morale says, the morale says that nature will respond to changes in spirit. If the world... If the world all of a sudden gets a gush of God's spirit, so nature will respond to it. Nature won't respond to it spiritually and start chuckling back and forth and start davening, okay, going back and forth and starting to pray. But nature will sense that the that the spirit is changing because it has a connection to spirit and it exists in the spirit that desires it to and therefore the morale says the following concept the morale says what do you think spring is all about spring isn't an, uh, a phenomena of just of nature that goes through its natural cycle and things begin coming out again when spring comes it's because it's that time of the year that God gives an abundance of his spirit to the world spirit to the world And that abundance of spirit, when it reaches the physical world that also has its origins in spirit, it gets the power to break out of the hibernation of winter. And therefore, when we look at springtime, what we're really seeing is the the physical manifestation of that, that giving of spirit into the world that breaks things free. So therefore, when the Chumash tells us that we went out in springtime, it's not that God chose a setting and said, this is the setting in which I would like you to leave. What was happening to the Jewish people? The Jewish people were getting the powers to free themselves from the internal and external bondage. That paralleled what was taking place in nature. In other words, God gave into the world the spiritual energy that helps even the physical break apart from its boundary. That now becomes designated not only for nature, but for man, and it accomplishes man's freedom. Now, what does that demonstrate? What that demonstrates, what that demonstrates is this concept that the Khovas Alvavas is developing. That when we look at the physical world, if we look very carefully at the physical world, we don't only see that the physical world is a logical proof that somebody must have created it. But we look at the physical world and we see that the one that created it is in it. And that everything in the physical world is bonded up and bound to, a, to the spirit which is the origin of its creation. That would be an example. Of this concept. Let me give you another idea of the same concept. One of the, one of the central thing, one of the central beliefs in Judaism, the central mythos in Judaism, is the Shabbos. Okay, the Shabbos. What kind of an idea is Shabbos? So, on the simplest terms, people think it's important to rest. It's important to get away from the work of the week. It's important to think, etc etc et cetera, Okay. And that's all true. Part of what the Shabbos is about is that we get so caught up with everything that we're busy with that we become remote from ourselves and we forget about ourselves and everything that's going on inside of ourselves. It's true. And therefore, thank God that God made the institution and obligated us to live by an institution that imposes upon us a way of leaving the rat races, leaving the escapes from ourselves, and having to learn how to live and to pay attention to ourselves. Very good. That's certainly a concept that exists in the in Shabbos. And that most probably goes as far as it goes for most people's conception of what Shabbos is. But the reality is, is that Shabbos goes further than that. The reality is that there's a description Okay, which I'd like to spend a moment or two on describing here, because it portrays the same point that the Chalva Chalvavos is trying to make here. And that is the following. That there's a description that God created the world in, in the biblical account in the six days of creation. And then at the end of the six days of creation, God gave us a yell. And this is all symbolic, it doesn't mean it literally, but it means in ways that we can understand. And he gave a a yell and he said, Enough! It's just enough. There's enough physical that was created. Nevertheless, the Chumash teaches us that even though God screamed enough with physical creation, God still had one thing left that he needed to create, okay? He had to create the Shabbos and to create the Shabbos. And everybody wonders, what does it mean to create the Shabbos? Shabbos is the absence of creation. You're not allowed to do anything creative on Shabbos in the sense of all of the things that we do all week long. Right? You're not allowed to build, and you're not allowed to destroy, and you're not allowed to plant, and you're not allowed to do this and that. So there's a lot of creative process that we're involved in all week long that we're not allowed to do on Shabbos. So if anything, Shabbos seemingly is an example of, n- of, of a departure from the normal creativity of man. So, h- why do you have to create the non-creativity of man? That's a little bit like this, it's, to, it does, it's not logical. To create, crea- in other words, to bring into possibility, creativity, that's a creation. To bring into the world the absence of, of, of creative process, That shouldn't need creation. That's just lazing around, doing nothing. There's no creative process necessary in that. But nevertheless, our sages say say that God had to create the Shabbos and with the creation of Shabbos, the world was complete. An example is given for this in the Medrash, which also needs interpretation. The Medrash gives an example to God creating the world and not having created that to Shabbos in the following way. Very poetic, but we don't bother to try to understand what it means. There was once this fellow that decided that he was going to make a wedding. Okay, he had a son and he was going to make a wedding. So, he, he, he found the most beautiful hall, he found the best caterer, the best band, the best liquor, the best flowers, okay, everything. Okay, he sent out the most gorgeous invitations, everything, okay? And then when the wi- wedding came around, he realized that there was one technical thing that was missing. He didn't look for a bride for, 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 for his son. So here there was this gorgeous hall with all of this delicious food and all of these beautiful flowers, okay, and everything else, but there was a technicality was missing. There was no collar. There was no bride, okay? okay? And so what is what is the Medrash say? The medrash is saying that while everything is wonderful, but what does it all celebrate? It all is there and it all gains its major significance in the fact that it celebrates something that's worth celebrating. And if you don't have that which is worth celebrating, so as gorgeous and as beautiful as all these things are, they lose their meaning. So too the medrash says that after God created the entire world in the six days of creation, he had the beautiful hall, and he had beautiful flowers, and he had delicious food, and he had everything. But the world was still missing its kala. It was still missing its bride. And the Medrish ends off, and the Medrish says, and what is the kala of the world? The collar of the world is the Shabbos. The bride of the world is the Shabbos. Now, what is this supposed to mean? What is it supposed to mean? So the Ar HaChaim, who is a major commentary on the Chumash, explains like this. He says that just like a physical human being isn't really worth anything, okay, except, and he doesn't even come alive with anything that he is, without some kind of a neshama, without some kind of a soul, without some kind of a spirit. That model is also true in terms of the world. It's not only true in terms of the human being, let me give you an example of this, just in case you can't relate to it, okay? What is the ultimate value of a human being? Because he has a head shaped in a certain way, he, has, he or she might have eyes that look in a certain way, a form that's in a certain way, like, what's the ultimate significance of a human being for themselves? And what's the ultimate significance that a person wants to be held in by another person? for their physical mass and for the allocation of their physical mass and physical appearance, or do they want to be appreciated by themselves and by others for the things that they stand for, for their feelings, for their goals, for their values, for their strivings in life. That's the Misham of a person. That's the spirit of a person. And everything else really wanes in significance and importance, okay, if that part doesn't exist. I mean, it's 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 a piece of it's a biological specimen that's walking around on two feet, but it, it lacks any real meaning unless one can see and one can find the the spirit of the person. What's the person all about? What's the substance of the person? So when I talk about the soul of the person giving life to a person, I don't only mean it in the in the physical sense that if a person's uh, soul expires so then the person dies. I don't only mean it in a physical sense, I mean it beyond the physical sense. I'm saying that there's sometimes a death that can take place in a person even if he's biologically moving around. Okay? Because if he loses the things, the values, the the, the, the goals, the meanings, and he, and he, he, and he becomes only the six days of creation. He only becomes the flowers and the food of the wedding hall. So then what's there to celebrate in, in in, in human existence? There isn't what to celebrate about it. So the Arachayim teaches us that the same way that God instills into the person a spirit that gives the person his ultimate meaning of existence and to celebrate existence, that concept of the infusion of soul into man is also something that the world as a whole also needs. The same way that man needs a soul, needs an inner being, the world needs a soul and an inner being as well. So what God created on the seventh day was He created a soul for the world, a neshama for the world and an energy that the world would be able to enjoy, that would make everything that was created a celebration of that. Just like the wedding hall and the flowers and the food and everything else is a celebration of the kala, is a celebration of the bride. Now, what is that? So what does Shabbos boil down to? What Shabbos boils down to is, again, the same concept that the is saying. That God created, that God created the world, but not only did he create the world, but the creator, the spirit that God is, is put into the world. And that virtually everything the Chava teaches us here is a combo of the physicalness that we're so familiar with, with part of this color, part of this bride, part of this spirit. Okay? And the world really is the combination of the two things together. Now, let's turn to the next page. I'm sure that there are questions about this, and there are many implications to what I'm saying. The stuff that I'm saying over here, okay, is, is, is certainly certainly a very complicated issue that's going to need a lot of clarification. But let's look at the next page, I have that little marking on top on the end of the second line, okay? And let's try to zero in a little bit more clearly on the significance of this. And the intelligent person that has understanding in his head, the intelligent person will desire to find and to be able to hear the music of that spirit that exists in the world. And not just look at everything with fleshy eyes, but be able to see that the same way that he sees himself beyond physicalness, and he sees meaning and content and substance and soul and spirit within himself, that he will be able to look and choose to take out of the world that spirit that the world has too. It's a choice. I don't necessarily have to be interested in spirit. Leave me alone with spirit. I want to enjoy it and finished. I don't need to look for the Spirit. It's physical, it gives me shade, it gives me sensation, it gives me pleasure, it gives me the light. Who's interested in Spirit? Hakmanish Kincainik with Spirit. Don't drive me crazy with Spirit. Well, in the same way that a person wouldn't want that another person should relate to them and say, listen, you're physical and you make me feel this way, etc., etc., I want to be appreciated for what I am inside, so the Chavos is saying that God asks us also the same thing. Here's a wonderful world, okay, but please don't take the world just for all of its physicalness, but try to find the spirit that I put into it. Try to relate to the spirit that I put into it. And that's what he's saying in this line. And the intelligent person, that really understands Yerberlom and HaOlam, he will choose to take out of his world, to know the knowledge of its spirit, the dakuso, and the subtle points that the world has, the yisumum kisula, and he will establish it like a ladder. And he will use this as a ladder to be able to, to confirm for himself God. Now, that's a phenomenal thing, what he's saying. He's saying once you look for the Spirit, then you become much more in contact, not with the proof of somebody that created the world, but you come in proof with God because you feel a chemistry with the quality of God. In other words, once you have a chemistry and you have a sense of the chemistry of an individual, you forget about proving if the individual exists or not. You're beyond that already. You don't even... In other words, now the question of, about the proof of the person is not if he exists or not, but what kind of an existence he is. Th- this is what the Chavos is pointing out. So this then becomes a ladder that not only confirms the, 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 abstract, the, the abstract idea, do, is there a God? But I come into contact with the qualities of God and then my confirmation of God is not by virtue of is He or isn't He, but what is He, okay? And the th- trying the Yadvik the Avodasok if he Godly verum must and then he will be able to connect himself to God to the extent that he his heart and his mind understand God and then man will feel more and more compelled to a relationship with God based upon his understanding of what God has done for him. All of the things that God delivered to him and carried to him. Without anything that man did to deserve it ahead of time. Now, We'll skip a line, okay? And I'm translating it also. If you're getting lost, it doesn't matter. Now the Chavavavus gets us into one of the implications. Serious implications. And he says like this. He says, once a person finds the Spirit, okay, so then he understands... Then he understands that it doesn't make sense for the person to preoccupy himself a majority of his time and a majority of his life with the physicalness of the world as opposed to the spirit of it. The same way that in a relationship between two people, once you can find what the person stands for, what the person's spirit is all about, what their values are, what their humanness is all about, okay? It stands to reason that your major preoccupation with appreciating the person, doing for the person, being committed to the person, giving to the person, sharing life with the person is in that area, all right? Is in that area. And this is not to say that either two two of the people in the relationship don't also, in addition to that, have physical needs, all right? and need to provide for each other in different ways. It's not to say that. But the person that the person that says, for instance, I need a wife because I don't have anybody to cook for me well, that's garbage. Okay? That's nonsense. That's the six days of creation without without the bride the bride of, of Shabbos. Okay? And that's a very simplistic and coarse example, you know. But There are many other examples that are not so simplistic, but that parallel that very, very clearly. So what the Chauvet HaVavet says is, once you find the spirit that's behind it, it stands to reason that my major value in my relationship to that thing then would be in the spirit, and not in the physicalness. Not necessarily to say that the physicalness doesn't also play a role in the relationship, but but what d- brings us together and what makes us grow together and what deepens the relationship between us really functions in its major place because I have found your inner, inner being and you have found been able to penetrate my inner being. So the Chavos says that that's also true in man's relationship to his world. Right? Why should man preoccupy himself with the world beyond the point of the necessity To be able to exist and to be able to live and to be able to live normally and then the rest of the time the person should be preoccupied with the spirit that's behind the world so to the extent that I need to take from the world and make a livelihood and so on and so forth and I need as a physical human being to enjoy the world and so on and so forth fine but that that should become the focus of my life and that should become that all of my talents and all of my energies should be focused on how to take more and more of that and miss the moments with the spirit of what the world is all about that doesn't make any sense, the Chobos said. You wouldn't do that in a, in a meaningful relationship where you found the inner being of the person either. You wouldn't just preoccupy yourself all day long with the physical needs of, of yourself or the other person if you found the inner being of the other person. You would want to be and enjoy that the inner being that you found in the other person. So the Chovah Tzavavitz says that this is really, in other words, when a person looks for this in the world, then the the allocation of his time and energy changes. The amount of time that he's going to want to take out of the world what he needs in order to exist will be limited to what he needs to exist. And beyond that, he's going to want to be preoccupied with the relationship that he can have to the Creator that resides in that world, right, this is the point that he's that he's making over here. Now, I don't know if in class last week, okay, in class last week you discussed the example of the wise person and the fool. Do you, do you, no, you don't recall that, okay? So I'll, I'll save you the text insight so that we should be able to cover the whole subject. And I'll just tell you the example outside, okay? He gives the following example for the concept which I've just described. He gives the following example, and he says like this. He says there were two brothers that, that inherited a large piece of land, agricultural in nature, okay? And the land needed to be developed It was totally undeveloped, but it had a tremendous amount of agricultural potential. Now, the two brothers that inherited the land, and they split the land, and each one had his portion of the land, they were in a quandary, okay? Because they needed to live this year. They needed to live this year. So, if they were going to put all of their work into the land, so how would they live from day to day? Because the land wouldn't give out its first crop until months later. So they were in a quandary. So the intelligent person hired himself out to work on somebody else's land. Okay, And all day long he worked on somebody else's land and he got paid for working and because he got paid he was able to buy the things that he needed. But at night, after he got out of work, he used to put a few hours into the land. Okay? Now, what he did was In addition to that, what he also did was that when he worked enough days for the other person that he had accumulated enough money to be able to take a day off, he took he asked for the day off, he got the day off, and that day off he spent completely on his own piece of land. Between all of these different ways of trying to grab time wherever he could have it, he was slowly able to cultivate his piece of land and to plant it. And in time, it gave him a good crop. Once he had a good crop, he had enough money to be able to basically stay on that, his own piece of land at least half of the time. And so with time, he was able to be his own boss in his own land and make a full living from his own piece of property. On the other hand, his brother who was foolish said to himself, well, I need money today. I need to live today. I need to enjoy life today. And therefore, this piece of land is worthless to me. So what he did is, he worked. And he earned money the same way that his wise brother did. But when the day was over, he said, now it's time for TV. Now it's time to go out to the movies. Now it's time to enjoy life. And he didn't spend the extra time on his own field. And when he had enough money to take a day off, he took the day off and he disappeared. And he had nothing to do. At the end of the year, this person had a field that would give him a livelihood, and this person had nothing. This is the example that the Chavez Halvavus uses, and the Chavez Halvavus says that this little example, which seems to be very straightforward to us, isn't it the story of our lives? This is what the Chavez Halvavus says. He says, we all come here, okay, and there's no question that we have to make a living. We need to live from day to day. But if we're wise, we understand that the living from day to day is only to the extent and is only necessary to the point that when I'm finished with it, I should be able to do and be able to cultivate in the area that I need to cultivate, where my life really is, where my time really should be spent, where my talents should really be. So therefore, I will go out and get a job and I will make money but I'll only look at it as a, as a medium, as a vehicle that will ultimately get me the time and the money that I need in order to do the things that I want to do, the things that are important to do, so that I should eventually be able to cultivate the things that I need myself. And if the person approaches the world in that way, then I'm going to... that I need and money that I need and so on and so forth in order to be able to cultivate the things that I need to cultivate okay, that where, the, where life really lies then you will find that person that after work will try to grab the hour okay, to, do, to cultivate the things that need to be cultivated if he'll make enough money and he's deserving of a day off he'll ask for the day off but that day off he won't squander he won't and he won't misuse it and he won't and he won't spend it in, in, in emptiness but he'll use that day to do the things on that day that he couldn't do the other days of the week because he had to worry for his existence. It's only the fool that makes out of mere existence the very goal of life. Right? And this is the example, this is the example that the is demonstrating over here. That if a person has the capacity to find the spirit that's in the world and the spirit that's within him, so then he's not going to want to spend more time than he needs to in his involvement of taking from that world the physicalness of the world and spend the rest of the time trying to relate to the spirit that's underneath it. If you think that this person in, the, in this chapter of the Chovas Halvavus is a fool, well, you most probably have just indicted a large part of the world at the same time because look look at the situation in the world also. Look at the situation in the world. Yes, it's important to make a livelihood. Yes, it's important to make contributions to society and to the world. All of those things are right, but if in doing those things, we totally lose ourselves, and those things become the goal to the exclusion of the development of one's own inner being, so then we've just done the work of the tipesh. he works all day and then he blows the rest of his time that he could have for himself this is one implication and D, uh, it's available to you in English here so you can read it later ok there is also another implication which I'll spend a little bit more time on right after the break ok and that so we finish the first three pages you'll read up the example there's one more implication which I'd like to touch on okay that completes this section we often feel okay and this is one of the unique places where philosophy has to become integrated a philosophy that doesn't become a way of life okay is is meaningless. It has to become a way of life. All right? This philosophy that the physical world has its origins in the spirit and therefore has chemistry with the spirit and can be affected by the spirit, and that one can find in the physical the spirit, etc., etc. As we've been detailing in this class all along, there's another point here too. Very often people think that the world of the spirit is peculiar and freakish and unnatural to the world of physical. They're different realms. Okay. If you want to tell me that morally I have to live in a certain way and that that will be spiritually productive for me, say it. And tell me that God wants me to do it and so on and so forth. But don't tell me for one moment that that has any kind of a relationship to the natural physical world. If it's anything, it's the repression of the natural physical world. It's the denial of the natural physical world. I'm sure you've all heard in different decibels of sound the argument, the argument that I'm just going to let things flow the way they naturally flow. All right? And the whole idea of superimposing any kind of a standard on top of that natural flow is wrong. Why? Because it's not natural. It's unnatural. So maybe out of a religious consciousness I'll do it, but it's unnatural. What we're learning over here is that the whole premise of that kind of a thought is incorrect. Because the idea that the physical and the spirit have no relationship to each other, okay? And and no relationship to each other We're learning here that the very origins of the physical come from the spirit. And if the origins of the physical come from the spirit, it stands to reason that they should have a compatibility with it. And that there isn't a, a deep inconsistency between the physical and the spiritual. Now this isn't to say that you can walk out of this room and say, now okay, the physical has its origins in the spirit, so no more spiritual challenges with the physical world. It's not as easy as that. But a major part of our struggles with the physical world, and our believing that the physical world is inconsistent with God's spiritual expectations, comes because we've, to begin with, separated the physical world from its spiritual origin. We see it as a separate legitimate existence. We, we believe it to be a separate thing unto itself, And then, of course, it becomes a a rival. It becomes a conflicting factor with spirit. But if we start off with with the premise that the physical has a holy origin, it means that somewhere there has to be a formula by which the physical can naturally flow with the expectations of the spiritual origin from which it comes. The notion that God can create something God is a spiritual origin and that once the thing is created, it has no way of finding compatibility with spirit is basically saying that something can't find compatibility with the origin from which it came. That's what it boils down to. If the physical has its origin in the spirit, okay, and then you say that the physical can't really live comfortably and naturally with the spirit, You're basically saying that though the physical has its origin in spirit, it has no way to relate to the origin that it came from. That's not terribly logical. Now, what are the techniques by which you can make the physical relate to its spiritual origin? that we need to talk about. But from a logical point of arguing, if something has its origin in something else, it seems to be reasonable to assume that it can relate to it because if that's where it comes from it would be logical to assume that it has some way of relating to it unless there's some extenuating circumstance that separates it from its origin all right this we'll talk about more after the break we'll start, we'll start with questions after the break and then we'll continue yes
1: In a person's day-to-day life and when they get involved in the work-a-day world, I'm trying to think practically how the person can translate setting aside, and I say set aside because in a way, when you're involved in, let's say you're up at 6.30 in the morning and you come back at 7, there's a big chunk of your life that's involved in making a living. So you can, there's two ways to looking at it. One is that even within the realm of making a living. You, as a Jew, portray yourself by your business ethics and the way you relate to people and all these other things. So you're living in spiritual living, your work a day world. Well. Now you come home and you're, you're going to eat, and you're going to maybe have a few minutes to make two phone calls, and now it's time to go to sleep almost because you have to get up to six the next day. I was saying within a normal person's day. Where does that person, unless he's on a very high level, and says to himself, "Okay, I'm going to get um, to—I don't know what they call it. First thing in the morning, they sometimes people all over the world have five thirty, dapiomi, dapiomi—and I'm going to have a a time to learn every night. I mean, some people can do it, but you have to want to do it. I guess one and two have the energy to do it, and three not have other things like family and friends and uh, community commitments." I I am just wondering. I mean, I have the luxury of coming during the day, or I used to go for years going at night to classes. But I'm just wondering in a, in a typical person's life, or especially a man's, how he can affect the, the spirituality that that is so important, not just in his life here, but his life thereafter how he can do it. And it's also
0: important for the rest of his family, exactly. too. Exactly.
1: And, and most of the time, even when people know that it's important, they seem to have a difficult time having any sense of balance of this spirituality. It's always the foot in the spirit in the physical world gets deeper and deeper, and the other one gets shallower and shallower until it's very off-balance.
0: Okay. It's a, it's, a, it's a good question. Okay. Um, I get. I guess the place to start is like this. Okay. There, there's a group of things that need to be said here. Number one. So, so, so let me finish all of them. Okay. Because a few of them will be unsatisfactory by themselves. Okay. Um, if you notice the example that the Chavez gave, which I didn't do inside just for the sake of time, the Chavez talks about a very interesting thing, which is, is not a, a, a simple thing by any means to live up to. The Chavez talks and he makes a distinction between, between identifying one's occupations with the physical world to the extent of need, okay, and and establishing that as one's border okay to be legitimately involved with the world and beyond that to be utilizing the time okay more involved in in the nature of the spirit now this is one of the places where there's major work that needs to be done the definition of need okay this is a very, very complicated issue—the definition of need. For as many people as exist in the world, that's most probably as many definitions as you can get of what constitutes need. Uh, for some people, anything short of 150,000 or 200,000 dollars a year is, need- is not—we haven't met up with needs. Okay, so there definitely is uh, a major question of what constitutes need. Now how do we make the definitions of what constitute need how do we how do we formulate okay how do we formulate that obviously the formulation of of what constitutes need and what doesn't constitute need has a lot to do has a lot to do with what man feels fulfilled in because man must be fulfilled in his existence in this world Number one, from where do I derive not money to pay the bills, but from where do I derive fulfillment in life? Okay, that's 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 one question. And beyond the question of from where do I derive fulfillment in life, from okay, what are the priorities, or what are the in a list of importance, what are the most important things that need to be accomplished? Okay, now let's go back and explain each one of them a little bit more in detail. Okay, the person that feels that they're not fulfilled, okay, without being super, super achiever in, in the ways of the world, okay, will, will invariably find themselves allotting, okay, and prioritizing their involvement in the physical world beyond anything else including their wives their children and anything else because man's man's need for fulfillment is, is a very very deep need and if a person has established in his own mind that the place to become fulfilled is in being this super achiever and it's not so much the dollars that the person possesses I'm talking about that but that I can prove to myself that ich can. you know I can make it and I just proved it if it's if if that kind of an attachment that the person has to the physical world then what you described before as becoming deeper and deeper into the physical world and le- less and less you know becoming more and more shallow into, in terms of the spirit of things is a very natural and inevitable consequence because a person will gravitate to that which he believes is the thing that's giving him his ultimate sense of self and his sense of fulfillment so that's, that's, that's one area that really has to be explored and if you try to explain to a person that honestly believes that their entire sense of self and fulfillment in this world comes from the, with their success so to speak in the marketplace and you try to tell them that they have to give time for this and give time for that your suggestions to them can almost feel threatening to them because what you're really doing is you're saying I know the way of being fulfilled i feeling good about myself and you're trying to get me to start doing things that are going to prevent me from this so the person that will if you if you will petition that person and say to that person listen it's important to learn it's important to dive and it's important to do this important to do that so the person will think to themselves this person is threatening my existence alright okay? so that's why uh, suggesting that a person have any kind of uh, involvement in learning and these kinds of things, you know, the involvement in the spirit without first addressing the issue of where does a person ultimately receive his fulfillment from, the, it will fall on deaf ears, the trying to move a person more in that direction. And therefore, the first thing that a person has to do is a person has to focus okay, on the fact that there is fulfillment available, and and, and in a long-lasting way, and in a deeper way, there is fulfillment that's available within the context of the spirit. Okay, that there is fulfillment, that you feel better about yourself, that you know that you'll have the power to do the right things in in situations of struggle, that you wouldn't necessarily have if you wouldn't be connected in those ways. I mean, there are many ways of trying to pr- prove to a person that they can gain fulfillment from that pursuit once the person believes that there's a level of fulfillment that they can gain from that pursuit so then the person can make the otherwise difficult choices of giving some kind of time to it then all of a sudden maybe it's not so important to have to make $150,000 maybe 125 dollars is enough and maybe 110 dollars would be enough very often we have a responsibility okay in formulating this because you know those of you that are married those of you that will get married okay very often very often the the breadwinner responds to the demands that are made on them in terms of what you know i need a pair of shoes for this one and i need that i need this and i need that i need this and i need that and very often without even knowing it ourselves okay we create a base of need that then the breadwinner feels that they have an obligation to fulfill. Okay? So sometimes the work doesn't necessarily always begin in convincing the other person of what the definition of need is or the definition of fulfillment is but to examine a little bit more closely one's own need and am I being really truthful? I mean, I'll give you a very extreme kind of an example but an example it is. Okay, um, in, in Lakewood, which is okay, it's 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 a colo community. It's a community where the pe- where people, after they got married, they they learned for a number of years afterwards before entering the workplace. Okay, and uh, Rav Cutler, who was the founder of the school, was once at a wedding. Okay, and at the wedding there was 40000 dollars of flowers at the wedding okay so flowers just spent on flowers just the flowers just the flowers and he looked at the flowers and he said this is two years of learning you know, and then he looked at something else and he said this is one year of learning he says everything in this world comes at a cost everything everything in this world it does it have, have to come at some cost there was time that was invested to earn the money to, to, to spend them on those flowers I mean, the time that was spent, okay, to earn the money to pay for the flowers, okay, one has to begin asking some of themselves the question is that the, the way that I want to use my time? To create the money to be able to spend it on these kinds of things, okay? And so th- that's one thing. The concept of, of uh, what will fulfill me and the realization, okay, number two, the realization that the things that 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 the most precious thing that is lost in the pursuit of money is time. And that time being able to be used for other things. Okay? So sometimes it needs the it needs the major surgery of redefining redefining what are my needs. What are in fact my needs. Okay? Now, if a person can see that there is measure and value in, in spending time with the world of the spirit instead of just the world of the physical. Right? So then, now that there is something else that's pressing, so now you go back and you say, well, maybe on, on second thought, maybe all of the needs that I had before aren't, aren't as, as, as clear that they are my needs as they were before. In other words, let me give you an example. Okay, and this doesn't hold so true in the secular world either but at least it's a little bit closer to the mark let's say a person knows that they have a deep need for a relationship Okay, and, and they know from experience or from advice that the only way that they're going to be able to have a healthy relationship is if they're going to give it time But if they're going to be flying all over the world day and night and not spend any time on the relationship, that the relationship won't work. Let's assume the person doesn't fool themselves and they know it 100%. And they also know that without a relationship, they're utterly miserable. And they can't even function. So then you will find that person all of a sudden being able to find time for the relationship. Why? Because once something becomes more defined as a need, so then what I do is listen there's five things that are very important to do how am I supposed to fit them all in the day okay so the answer is that when all of the needs become defined then you measure them up against each other and maybe they don't weigh the same anymore that, as they weighed before and maybe all of a sudden time is fi- found now if you're talking about the process of cultivating in a person the appreciation of need that's a separate question Okay, I'm just explaining that the, the, the notion that time doesn't exist is not really, really true. Time doesn't exist for things that are not priorities. So the things that are priorities, okay, so then there's the process of reevaluating the other things that I thought were needs and allotting to them not necessarily no time, but different time than I allotted to them before. This is true okay this is true and I know it to be true okay it's not easy okay it's not easy Uh, a a person that is is committed above all else that life should be easy is not going to be able to work this thing but I know it's true I'll share with you a personal example okay just so that you shouldn't think this comes from books and not from experience I'll share a personal example okay everybody's work is important to them right And and my work in the school and the other work that I do in the evenings, the outreach work, is important to me. Now, as important as it is, okay, as important as it is for a person to think to themselves, okay, that they're going to reach out to the entire world and they're going to forget about their family, okay, they're making a terrible, terrible mistake. A terrible mistake. And there were times that I believed that I didn't have time for my kids and there were times that I believed that I didn't have time you know this is very similar to your question you know if it's, you get up at 6.30 in the morning and you, go to, you, know, you come home at 7 and, so, and there's only so many things that you can fit into the day and so on and so forth but it, there's no time until those things become needs but once those things become needs okay then either you tell yourself listen Okay, if I reach out to the whole world, but I don't reach out to my own family, so then what is the whole thing worth? Okay, and therefore, you either cut down on the schedule, or you learn how to do it by expecting a certain amount more of yourself, or demanding more of yourself. And it won't be easy. And sometimes it's a combination, where you have to cut back a little, and then expect a little bit more of yourself, and things like that. It's, 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 it's uh, you know, and it's the combination of the things together that... That, that really helps a person to, to create you know, to create the time. I mean, there, there are many things that I don't get to. I must tell you, there are many things that I don't get to. I have a book that's unwritten. I mean, it's written, but it's not, it's not, it's not ready for publishing. Okay? And I'm not going to fool myself and say I have no time. Right? That's not the bottom line. The bottom line is that there are other things that come before it there are other things that come before it and to say I don't have time is not really where the answer is that's really not the answer the real answer is that there are so many other things that are important okay and in my mind I've made a decision that the other things for whatever reason they are more pressing or they're more urgent okay or they're placed upon me even if I don't choose them as being more urgent and finished so I'm, but I won't fool myself in saying there's no time there is time Right. There is time, but we 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 allocate where the time goes. I don't know if that helped at all, but that's that's uh... yes. Um,
2: you were talking before about that ladder, and once you can go beyond the physical to the spiritual idea of God or something like that, then you don't even deal with the question of, is there a God? You deal more with what kind of God there is, how can you deal with that
0: question if you don't know if there is a God? Okay. Okay. In other words, what I was saying was like this. It's it's for certain that a person has to ask the first question first. There's no doubt about it. The person has to... The person has to uh, go through a process of asking himself does it make sense that there's a God and what are the probabilities of God and so on and so forth but what I was saying maybe I said it a little bit too cute maybe let me say it a little bit more accurately what I'm saying is that there are many ways that we come to know God we can come to know God by the proofs of his probability of does he exist or doesn't he exist we can come to have a confirmation of God uh, by the fact that we've experienced by the things that we've done we've experienced the kinds of things that we believe we're an experience with God we're an experience of what God stands for let me give you an example the person that his whole life long okay, no person for all his life long asks himself the question day in and day out is there a God or isn't there a God Okay, it's possible if a person is very confused about the issue and questions, but let's say, let, let me just give you an example. Let's say a person decides one day, listen, I've been struggling with this issue, and all in all, I think it's 60% that there is and 40% that there isn't. I don't think that I'm going to be able to raise the percentages, but it is more in favor that there is than there isn't. Okay? And then the per- person proceeds and says, okay, it's, it's a probability, okay? It's a probability, and I'm willing to live. With, uh, with probability. It makes it still more logical to live with what's probable than with what's not, with, with what's less probable, okay? Okay, what's my choice? Well, 60% is not enough. So, but to, then to live in the 40%, okay, doesn't make any sense because that's even less than that. That certainly doesn't make sense. Then a person proceeds, he says, okay, so I'll live with the more probable and I will proceed to do this, that, and the other thing as the Torah prescribes for a Jew and things like that what will happen is that then the person will get confirmations of God that didn't come out of the place of is there or isn't there but because I begin experiencing things that are spiritual things that feel right and make sense and so on and so forth then I get a confirmation of God because I sense that this must be what it means that there's a God in other words let's say a person goes through a Shabbos and he feels things that he's never felt before ok ok that, that's not a logical proof that there is or there isn't a God that falls into the second g- category of what the Chavos of is saying that there's a level of confirmation that we, we receive through experiencing as opposed to logically arguing and that's also a legitimate thing because sometimes a person can know through experience Okay, something that cannot be proven even through argumentation, and very often the, the depth of a person's connection to God, and his belief in God, is is nurtured more very often, not in the logical arguments and the the final probability, but in the experiential stuff that that confirms. You know, I, I you know, there was once a fellow. He had a a master's in psychology. He was working for an orphanage. A very successful person, a very sensitive person, and he had questions. He had questions in faith, and they were legitimate questions in faith. And he went back and forth for a long, long time. Okay, and then after a while, I guess he worked with the probabilities, and he started doing things Jewishly, and so on and so forth. And then once I wanted to sit down with him and I wanted to talk to him about, you know, one of his philosophical questions, and he said a very interesting thing to me. He said to me, he said, if a person needs to believe forever and ever, only based on argumentation, then he won't believe. Well,
2: because somebody I mean the only thing you can't know everything there is to know, and somebody can one day tell you something that totally disproves everything that you never know thought. Or
0: yeah yeah so what's the function of the argumentation the function of the argumentation to be perfectly honest the function of the argumentation is to bring a person to the place that he's willing to 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 let go of that as being the central issue and experience what the Judaism is and then from a completely different vantage point of experiencing god that's what I was talking about before as the example of the Chavis of Then come back, okay, then come back to the to the same questions that he had before and realize from a different place totally that he knows that there's a God. You know, the do, do, do you follow what I'm saying?
2: I think that there could also be another reason why a person, you know, say you, you set aside the rational reasons and then you say, I'm going to try experiencing it. Right. And why I think, you know, a lot of people would become more convinced after that, and I think it's because once you sort of commit yourself in a certain, to a certain degree of something, then you kind of have to, after you've made a certain commitment, then since you're doing these things that that, that reinforce your commitment, you sort of have to convince yourself that, that what you're doing is for a good reason, so you sort of get yourself to believe that this is true, and also you're, you're, you'll be surrounded by this type of atmosphere and these people, and you'll just get more sort of convinced.
0: I hear what you're saying but, but um, my own experience with people has shown differently I have to tell you because let's say let, let, let me give you the following example which is an example parenthetically that's a real live example that, 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 that I'm familiar with let's say you tell yourself you're going to commit yourself okay to do X, Y, and Z and to experience for three months You put a very definite time limit on it. You, to begin with, do not commit yourself more than for that time. Okay? According to your argument, you have a perfect out at the end of the three months. Because you never, to begin with, committed yourself, and you don't have the psychological need of, of justifying a commitment, and so on and so forth. I, to begin with, said I was only trying it, and I gave it a very definite time element. Okay? The reality is is that the experience works even if you give it a time element. It's not when you don't give it a time element. Now, you're coming from a very interesting place and you're coming from a very good place, a sense of wanting to keep to something that you committed yourself to and then, you know, stand behind it no matter what, which is a very mature and it's a very, it's a very healthy attitude. I'm just saying that there's a lot more to, to the... To the phenomena of experience, building belief than just the integrity that you're talking about. There, the, there is an element of integrity that's involved in it, but sooner or later you can get around the integrity. And the arguments, okay that this is the, this is not my life and I'm not saying you know, I'm wasting my life and so on and so forth, which are arguments which I've heard will supersede the, the argument of integrity you can set yourself up to begin with that it's not a question of integrity put a time limit and nevertheless the concept of experience works the reason why the concept of experience works and maybe why you're struggling a little bit with it maybe I'm not saying that it's for sure how am I to know but the reason why experience works is because there is a chemistry and this was a little bit what we were talking about before there is a chemistry Between the physical and the spiritual, so even if I'm in a physical place, but because the nature of the physical is that it has its origins in spirit, if it's put into an environment of spirit, it finds a familiarity with the place from where it came. It finds a familiarity. It finds it finds something that fits. It finds something that's right. Okay, in that. It's,
2: It's very
0: difficult to. It's not a rational thing it's not a rational thing it's not a rational thing it's, it's, it's an experiential thing that lies in the nature in the nature of, of, the, of the human being's chemistry I mean Chassidus goes you know, goes miles with this concept that there is an essential chemistry that exists in a Jew if he's conscious of it or not and so on and so forth but basically it's chemistry the experience is not just the factor of integrity I'll tell you that people that keep the things because of integrity and because of the fear of punishment and the fear of this and the fear of that those people that get into Judaism just for those reasons okay and they feel that that is the only thing that's feeding they're holding on it, their Judaism usually doesn't survive it usually doesn't survive because a human being and his needs are are deeper than, than just that factor that you're talking about, and that's why were it not for the chemistry which goes very deep into the person okay the person's Judaism will not survive the onslaught okay of, of the, the other the other factors so, so
2: there are people who say weren't at all sure if, if this is the right thing for them if they said I'm going to commit it for three months and they did things even if they didn't really feel any meaning given they just did them without even
0: okay. about we always with them. try to pursue in the things that we do an understanding at the same time Okay, it, we, we pursue an understanding at the same time we don't lock ourselves away from the extent that we can understand something we're, we're not closing down the brains and saying now's the time to just do. No, we, we make an honest attempt, to make an honest attempt to understand, okay, to understand the things that we're doing and try to gain an appreciation and if do it slowly.
2: They don't have that, if they're doing things, they're not sure that God exists, they don't have that, the real reason behind what, why they're doing something, and if they still do it, even if they're not sure why they're doing it,
0: it still has an effect? Yes, 100%. Uh, we'll talk about it more next week, but uh, 100%. Okay, Sounds a little bit ludicrous, but yes, and I'll explain next week why.